Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that it was good. He separated the light from the darkness. If you're like my wife, and you're married to Ebenezer Scrooge, who says no Christmas allowed at all until after Thanksgiving, now is your time. Thanksgiving has passed. You may unleash the red and green upon us. Blast the Hallmark Channel movies, and most importantly, string up some Christmas lights, because for the next four weeks, as you can see by the festive stage decorations, we're going to be in a series called Christmas Lights. Now, Greg is going to be with you for the next three weeks talking about Christmas, talking about Jesus, and the symbolism that light plays in that story. Today, as you might have guessed from the scripture, we're going to take things back a little bit. Actually, a lot. Actually, all the way back that you can possibly go. We're going to be at the very opening moments of the universe when light was first created to set the scene. Light is one of the biggest themes in all of scripture, and especially one of the biggest themes in all of Christmas. So here we are. If you walked in here today, and you knew absolutely nothing about Christianity, you didn't know anything about church, about what Christians believe or what we think, and you came in here and you picked up a Bible and said, I wonder what this book is about, this Bible, and you opened it to page one and just started reading, knowing nothing, this is the first thing you would read. And by the time you got to the end of this paragraph, this is all you would know about God. This is the way that God chose to introduce himself to his people. The Bible is God's way of revealing himself, and from the beginning, this is how he wants to meet us. The first thing we ever see God do, ever, is create light. He says, let there be light. Now, if you're going to make a universe from scratch, he could start wherever he wanted. He's speaking this whole thing into existence. He can start however he wants and do it in any order he wants, but he starts with light. Have you ever noticed, if you've been through the days of creation, in Genesis chapter 1, there's a seven-day creation narrative. Have you ever noticed some, some of the days seem a little bit out of order? This bothered me a lot when I was a kid. We good? Okay, this, oh, anyway. This bothered me a lot when I was a kid that the days seemed... Am I doing something? Let's try it again. Hello? Did, you, did it work? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Okay. Well, anyway. This bothered me a lot when I was a kid that the days of creation seemed out of order. Okay. That also bothered me. Okay. God makes light before he starts anything. Okay? Light's the first thing we need. But he doesn't make plants, which need light to survive, until day three. And he doesn't make anything with eyeballs, anything that could actually perceive the light, any animals or people or anything, until day five and day six. So there's just light starting on day one that nobody can see till day five and six, and that nothing alive can use until day three. But the weirdest thing is, God doesn't make the sun or the moon and stars until day four. So there's nothing made that can produce light until day four. On day one, God shows up and makes light. Yet there was nothing that could produce light or nothing that could perceive light. And all of a sudden, all that exists is light. Why did he start this way? 
According to the first paragraph we see of the whole Bible, if you read this closely, God is out to solve three problems that he sees with the world. It says, Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. So three problems with the world. It has no form, it's empty, and it's dark. So, if you take a look at this chart, on days 1, 2, and 3, God starts working to overcome that formlessness. And on days 4, 5, and 6, he works to overcome the emptiness. And the days kind of read this chart across instead of up and down. So see, on day 1, he makes day and night, giving order to the universe. And on day 4, he creates the sun and moon to fill the emptiness of the... On day 2, let's, let's keep trying this. You want to try that? Is this one? Let's try this. Okay. On day two, God makes sea and sky, and on day five, he fills that empty sea and sky with fish and birds. So he gives form to the world. On day three, giving form to the world by making, separating sea and land. And then on day six, he fills the emptiness of the sea and land with animals and birds. So the process of the days of creation, if you go in order, first he gives the world form. Then he fills that emptiness with something. But before he starts anything, he fixes the other problem. Before he starts fixing the formlessness or the emptiness, he sees darkness. And he says, let there be light. So at the very beginning of the Bible, from the start of the whole story, we're going to meet the protagonist, what's called the protagonist of the story. His name is God, and he's also the author of the story. And the whole Bible is going to be about him. And this is what you need to know about him that you can learn from the first paragraph. First, when he sees formlessness, he wants to bring order. When he sees emptiness, he wants to fill it with beauty and life. And more than anything else, when he sees darkness, he wants to fill it with light. That's who God was at the dawn of time, and that's who God is today. He's a God who brings order and fullness and light. Why did he open with let there be light? Why start with light? I think our first answer to that question is because he couldn't help himself. When God looks at my life every day and he sees darkness that's creeping into the way I see myself or the way I see other people, he reenacts this creative moment and says to that darkness, let there be light. When God looks at your life, or your family, or your culture, or anywhere on earth and sees darkness, his knee-jerk reaction is the same as it was at the dawn of time. He says, let there be light to shine into that darkness. The almighty light maker wants to create. That's who he is. And to the darkness in your life, that's what he does. Now, some of you are like, wow, that's really interesting. And some of you stopped listening earlier. You're still trying to figure out, how did God make light before he made the sun? I know it's a big question. Let me go back to it. I don't want to skip over that. It's an important question. How did God make light before he made the sun? Well, let's talk about it. Asking how God made light first before he made the sun, I think is the wrong question. Usually when we're talking about God, asking how he does anything is going to be the wrong question because the answer is always the same. Well, he's God. He can do whatever he wants. You don't know. He spoke the universe into creation. Usually I think, I mean, how did he do any of this? How did God speak a word and create flamingos? How did God speak a word and create Jupiter? Why would you find the entire creation narrative plausible, that he could speak all these things out of nothing? God made the universe from no source, but then draw a line when it comes to making light from no source. To me, the more interesting question than asking how God did anything is always asking why. 
because the Bible gives us a lot of clues to try and figure out why God did the things he did, because God wants us to figure him out and to see him. So why did he open with let there be light? I don't know how he did it. I don't know how he did anything, but why? I think there's a lot of clues here. We just talked about the first reason, which I think is because he can't help it because he sees darkness and he wants to fill it with light. But there's another big reason. I think God started with light before he made anything else. I think it's the same reason that I did it a minute ago when I came up here to start talking with you today. And this one's pretty earth shattering. So keep your seats, hear me out. When it's dark, we can't see. Let me explain, let me explain, hang on, let me explain. <laughs> when we turned on the lights just a minute ago, when this room was dark and then we turned on the lights, think back to us, think back to that moment. What changed in the room when the lights came on? What do we have now that we didn't have before the lights were on back when it was dark? Well, I set out to answer this question. It's a lot more complicated than you would think. See, nothing actually changed in the room when the lights turned on. You feel exactly the same. We're all sitting exactly where we were. The lights came on. And what happened is this room was filled with electromagnetic radiation. Electromagnetic radiation is what's blasting out towards your retinas from these cute little Christmas lights back here. Researching for this, trying to figure out what light actually is, I was shocked to learn that it looks like this. And I'm going to explain to you exactly what, no, I'm just kidding. I don't know anything about what this means. Even though we've come so far with understanding our world, we're put a man on the moon, we're cloning sheep, we still don't know how light works or even what light is. Isaac Newton, he thought that light was little tiny particles that shot out from really hot objects, so he figured, well, light's a particle, just like any other piece of matter. But there was a Dutch physicist, his contemporary, named Christian Huygens, and he thought that light was waves, which vibrate out in waves from sources. But both Newton and Huygens, they didn't know what it was made of. Newton said it's a particle, but I don't know. A particle of what? I don't know. And Huygens said it's a wave, but I don't know what it is that's waving. No clue. Neither of these scientific geniuses could figure out what it actually was. And I think maybe it's because we're not meant to know. To this day, nobody knows if light is a particle or if it is a wave. And if you have trouble sleeping, get on Wikipedia and look up wave-particle duality. The first thing you'll see is this, and then you'll start reading about it like I did, and then you may fall asleep because it's impossible to understand. I don't get it at all. And if you feel bad about this, don't feel too bad because Albert Einstein couldn't understand it either. That made me feel a lot better when I learned that. In 1938, literally Albert Einstein said this about the particle-wave dilemma, trying to figure out what light actually is. He said, we're faced with a new kind of difficulty here. We have two contradictory pictures of reality. Separately, neither one of them, the particle or the wave, fully explains the phenomena of light, but together, they do. Which I think is the way really smart people say, I don't know what it is. Light was the first thing that ever came into existence in the entire universe but we still don't really understand what it is. So as far as what actually changed in this room when we turned on the lights, here's the part that a scientifically illiterate peasant like me can possibly understand. Light has an electric field, it has a magnetic field, and that's why we call it electromagnetic. And its waves are within this certain sliver of the spectrum of radiation that can trigger a chemical reaction in our eyes that our brains can actually perceive and interpret. And different wavelengths make different colors. And the fact that we have two eyes spread apart lets us see depth, and that's pretty much how sight works, as far as we know. The ability to see is just the ability to detect light. 
the ability to see is just the ability to detect light. If there's no light, there's no sight. If there was zero light in the entire world, our eyes would be worthless. They wouldn't be able to do a thing. Some of you have probably been in caves and gone down into the cave darkness, and down there the guide will turn off all the lights, and you hold your hand right in front of your face, and you can't see anything, and it's terrifying. If there's no light, your eyes have no function. They can't do anything. So why'd the Creator make light first? Why make light before anything else? Well, because if there's no light, there's no sight. Without light, we can't see anything. And God is a God who wants to see his creation and be seen by it. If that sounds a little bit too simplistic, remember that every word of the Bible is God desperately trying to reveal to us who he is. And right off the bat, he wants us to know that he wants us to see and be seen by him. So when he starts making light, when there's still nobody to see what he's doing yet, that tells me he wants us to know he's performing for an audience. Back when I was a little kid, my grandma used to sing us old church hymns as lullabies to help me and my brother fall asleep, which is pretty cute. And I know all the words of a lot of really old songs now because of that. And it shows how great she was, but also how genius she was. Because nothing will knock out a squirming little kid faster than tis midnight and on olive's brow. I was out like a light. I love that song now, though. One song that she used to sing to put us to sleep, though, had the opposite effect. Instead of luring, lulling me off till I fell asleep, it woke me right up. I would sit up, I would look around the room, and I was terrified by this old church song. Some of you may know it. Let's take a look at these lyrics. All along the road to the soul's true abode, there's an eye watching you. Every step that you take, this great eye is awake. There's an eye watching you. Does anybody know this song? Anybody? You may remember the refrain. Watching you, watching you. Every day, mind the course you pursue. Watching you, watching you. There's an all-seeing eye watching you. It sounds a little better when you sing it in four parts. This song terrified me. And one of the main reasons is because after a certain age, I watched The Lord of the Rings. <laughs> and so I started to picture God like in The Lord of the Rings, the bad guy is this giant flaming eyeball on top of a tower who looks down on all the good guys and he's so evil. I started picturing God like the Illuminati watching over me. Or worse, like that creepy monster from Monsters, Inc. who says, I'm always watching you. You know who I'm talking about. You know it or you don't. God is always watching you. How does it make you feel to know that someone is always watching you who can read your thoughts? Well, the answer to that question, to how it makes you feel, depends completely on who you think God is. If God is Sauron, it's terrifying. When I think of somebody watching me, since it's the 21st century, what I first think of is the NSA or the government watching over us because they've admitted they're listening to all of our phones, they've wiretapped every electronic device, and they're watching us. And it scares me. This is a meme I saw on Twitter. People in the 60s used to say, I better not say that or the government will wiretap my house. People today say, hey, wiretap, do you have a recipe for pancakes? <laughs> so maybe it doesn't bother you that they're watching us and collecting our data. I don't know what they're collecting it for, but I don't think it's to throw us a great surprise party. I don't know what it's for, but I don't think it's good. But a lot of us see God like this, don't we? 
a lot of us have this image of God in our minds. Like God has this database of every bad thing you've ever done and every bad thought you've ever thought, like some kind of prosecutor who's collecting evidence to bring against the accused criminal. Every time you do or say anything bad, that great eye watching you takes note of it. He's going to bring it up later. This morning, I want to tell you that the fact that God sees you and watches everything you do and think is the opposite of that. The fact that God sees us and that he watches us, it's actually the most comforting thing in the world. Last year was my wife's and my first Christmas as a married couple, and we made a huge critical mistake. So we didn't realize that after you get married, you have a new relationship with your parents than one that you had before. In our case, that looks like your parents don't care about you anymore. They're just thinking, where are those grandkids at? So... We had a really, really thoughtful gift for my parents last Christmas, my new wife and I. Since both my older brothers have babies and my parents watch over those babies, the babies stay at my parents' house a lot and they babysit, we got my parents one of these. We got them a baby monitor. It's a thoughtful gift, right? Wrong, wrong. It was the worst, most awkward gift. I mean, what do you think my parents thought? Opening a gift on Christmas from a pair of newlyweds and it's a baby monitor. (laughs) They were like, when's our next grandkid showing up? And we had to do this explaining. It was very awkward. Like, no, it's for the other babies. And they didn't believe us. And we had to talk them into it. It was very awkward. <laughs> Even now, they're like, is, he, is this it? Is he? No, no, I'm sorry, Mom and Dad. You know, I used to think that baby monitors were so creepy. I mean, here's this new baby. And you're like, welcome to the world, baby. Now we're going to set up a live video feed so people can watch you while you're asleep. But once I talked with some real parents who actually have babies, they totally changed my mind about this. See, both of my older brothers now have a daughter. They're between one and two. And they said the same thing about it. And they don't say stuff like this. So I was paying attention. They don't say stuff like this. But they both said this about their baby daughters. We'd just be sitting there looking at her and watching her lay there. And she'd fall asleep. And we'd just be watching her sleeping. And then all of a sudden, an hour had gone by. We were just sitting there watching this baby sleep. And I didn't believe him until I did it too. Have you ever just looked at a baby while it's asleep? It's the most peaceful thing in the world. I don't even have a baby, but I get it. There's something about watching a baby that's so innocent and so pure, it just draws you in. It makes you want to keep looking. It makes you want to protect it. It makes you want to keep it safe no matter what. And that's why baby monitors aren't creepy, because the purpose is because parents like looking at their kids. They want to watch them and keep them safe. When God watches you, it's not like the NSA. It's not like Sauron. It's not creepy. It's more like this. When I say God is always watching you, the reason that he's always watching you is because he loves to look at you. He wants to look at things he loves just like we do. When God sees you, he's drawn in by you and captivated by something so beautiful and so pure, he can't look away. What you see when you look at yourself in the mirror, that sight fills the creator of the universe with pure joy. It makes him want to protect you. It makes him want to keep you safe. God's not watching you because he's out to get you or trick you or keep a list of every bad thing you've ever done or said. God is watching you because there's nothing in the universe he would rather be looking at. So what does this mean for us practically? It means 
that unlike so many people in this world who worship so many false idols that don't care about them, who worship nothing and think that they're worth nothing, unlike that, we get to worship a God who sees us. Your boss, your friends, your family, your coworkers, nobody really sees you for who you are, can see your thoughts, but God sees you all the way to your innermost feelings that you don't tell anybody else, and he loves you like an ocean. There's some flowers that grow on some rainforest canopy somewhere that nobody ever lays eyes on before they're born and they die. There's some spider crab a thousand miles down in some ocean trench that nobody will ever see throughout its entire life. And those things matter because God made them and God sees them. How much more do we matter? Your thoughts while you're driving home alone from work or while you're laying awake in the morning or at night that nobody else will ever know but you. God sees it. And he's not out to get you. He sees it and he loves you. He wants to protect you and help you. When God said, let there be light to start the whole thing out, what he was saying is, I want to see my children, every single one of them, and I want them to see me. This is why in John chapter 3, which is where you find the famous verse, John 3.16, right after Jesus says, John 3.16, right after Jesus promises that God loved the world so much, he sent his only son. Right after Jesus says that whoever believes in God will not perish but have eternal life. Right after Jesus says, God didn't send me into the world to condemn the world but to save it. Right after that, he says this. He gives us a verdict. This then, Jesus says, is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. So why did the Creator start with light? He could have started any way he wanted. Well, he started with light because he couldn't help it, and when he sees darkness, he wants to fill it. That's who God is. He started with light because he wants us to know that he's been watching us from the very beginning. He thinks we're so beautiful and he wants to keep us safe. And the final reason I want to tell you this morning that I think God made light first is to show us what he looks like. I don't mean that the light shines on God and then we're able to see God. I mean actually light itself is what God looks like. Have you ever wondered what God looks like? Maybe you picture like an old man with a huge beard and a robe or something like that. The Bible says over and over and over, the most common thing it uses to tell us what God looks like, it says in so many different places, God looks like light. Jesus' favorite way to teach, and you see this all throughout the Gospels, Jesus' favorite teaching method was to give a metaphor for what God was like. See, Jesus knew he had his work cut out for him, trying to reveal God to people like us. He knew that our brains aren't big enough to really understand God, and that our languages aren't strong enough to really carry who God is and explain it. And so Jesus used metaphors. He said, I'll tell them, you know, by showing them something, some parable. God is like this. God is like that. And somehow these parables seem shallow enough for a first grader to understand, and infinitely deep at the same time. Jesus said, God is a door. If you knock, he will let you in. Jesus said, God is food. Without him, your spirit will starve. Jesus said, God is a vine. He provides the nutrients to grow, and apart from him, you'll wither and die. God is a shepherd. He'll guard you and lead you, and if you get lost, he will find you. 
Jesus said God is a father, a mother, a spring of water, but God's favorite metaphor for himself, far and away used more than any other, is light. In John 8, 12, Jesus declares, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And in the very next chapter, he says it again as he's healing a man born blind. When Jesus is sitting face to face with a man whose eyes were born without the ability to detect light, he looks at him and he says, as long as it is day, we must do the works of God. But night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And as Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he touches this man's eyes and he gives them the ability to detect light and they open and the first thing they see is Jesus. The Bible says Jesus shines like the sun during his transfiguration, right after his resurrection, and then in the book of Revelation in John's vision when he comes back again. Every time that Jesus is closest to heaven, he shines. The opening chapter of the Bible in Genesis 1 gives us the entire message that we need to know. It's like one of those movie trailers that spoils the entire movie. By the time the trailer's over, you're thinking, I was going to go see that. Now I feel like I've already seen it in 30 seconds. The opening of the Bible is just like that. God can't stand when things are formless. He wants to bring them order. God doesn't like emptiness. He wants to make it full of beauty and life. And God will not tolerate darkness. His plan since the beginning for the universe and for you is to fill this place with his light. I want to close today with a prayer. A prayer from the Bible, from the book of Ephesians, where Paul prays for our eyes. But he's not praying for our physical eyes to be able to detect electromagnetic radiation. Paul is praying for a different set of eyes. He says, and you see it at the beginning there, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. And I love that word, enlightened. He says, I pray the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. Because just like we would never know what light was if we didn't have eyes, there are spiritual truths that we could never know if God hadn't given our hearts a certain kind of vision too. And just like we can see using light, even though we have no idea what light is or how light works in the same way, the light from God, which shines on the retina of the human heart, is mysterious to us, but it still works to heal us and give us hope and power. This prayer was written by Paul. Read along with me and I'll read it out loud. And I want to pray this over us as we close. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. In Jesus' name, amen.